The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel 1, 17-21. God gave these four men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and medians in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. It's the fall. It means it's football season. I'm excited about football season. I know not everyone's excited about football season. My, some in my community group told me this. But I'm excited about football season. It's the best time of the year. In 2007, the New England Patriots opened the season with a dominant road win against their rival, the Jets. They followed it up with a lopsided win the next week, and the next week, and the next week. They didn't have a close game until the ninth week of the season when they met Peyton Manning's Colts and barely edged out a victory. They kept winning, mostly in dominant fashion, and they entered the final week of the season with a chance to finish the regular season undefeated something that only been accomplished once in NFL history. Their opponent in their final game was the 10-5 and New York Giants. It was a close game, and the Patriots prevailed, and they finished the season 16-0, and and many people were calling them the greatest football team ever. Both the Patriots and the Giants made the playoffs, though the Giants barely squeaked in as the final seed. They both won their playoffs games, and they were set for a rematch in the Super Bowl, the now 18-0 and Patriots against the 13-6 and Giants. Game went back and forth, close game. The Patriots scored with a couple minutes to go, take the lead. The Giants, through some miraculous plays, were able to come down and score with just a few seconds remaining, and they won the Super Bowl. And weeks earlier, the New England Patriots, everyone thought, were the greatest football team ever assembled. They walked off that field with their heads bowed and their shoulders slumped as the Giants celebrated the championship. One of the main lessons of the book of Daniel is to not hand out the trophy during the middle of the season. Just because someone looks dominant, just because they win a few battles does not mean they will end victorious. On the flip side, the one who appears to be losing might just end up winning in the end. I want you to think about our world for just a moment. I want you to think about the direction of American culture, about the persecution of Christians in the Middle and Far East, about the aggression of Russia, the massacres happening in war-torn African countries, the Ruthless elimination of special needs babies in northern Europe. Does it feel like evil is winning? Does it feel like the kingdom of God has lost? Now this is not the first time in human history that it seems like evil is hoisting the championship trophy. Consider just the human history record in the Old Testament. Apart from a very brief time under the reigns of King David and King Solomon, God's people were constantly defeated and harassed and 
held in captivity and exiled. Skip ahead to the Dark Ages, the African slave trades, two world wars during the last century. It often feels like evil's not only winning, it's undefeated and it's running up the score. That feeling brings a particular temptation to God's people. If evil is winning, then we're compromised. We're, we're tempted to compromise to keep ourselves and those we love safe. If doing what's right doesn't seem to matter anyway, then why do what's right? It makes more sense to do what's expedient. But the book of Daniel is here to encourage us to remain faithful even when everything seems to be going wrong because the season's not over. The trophy hasn't been handed out yet. The final buzzer has not sounded. In this first chapter of Daniel, we're introduced to three themes that we will see repeated and expanded throughout the book. Here's the first one. Babylon wins battles. Babylon wins battles. So the book of Daniel opens in 605 B.C., The nation of Israel has been in decline for more than three centuries. In fact, it had already had a civil war divided into two nations now. You had this northern kingdom made up of ten of the tribes. You had a southern kingdom called Judah. A hundred years before this, the northern kingdom had been invaded by Assyria. They had been defeated. They had been taken captive. It really didn't exist anymore. Most of Judah's kings were evil, but a good king had recently reigned, and that good king's name was Josiah. Maybe you're familiar with him from Sunday school. Josiah was a young king. They found the the Bible hidden away, and it was brought out, and they started reading it. And as a result, Josiah led in rebuilding the temple and and restoring the right worship of God. He was a godly leader. He reigned for 31 years before he was killed in a battle with Egypt in 608 B.C., Now, the king that followed him, Jehoiakim, was an evil king. And less than three years into his reign, he faces a huge crisis. And this is where Daniel starts, Daniel 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. Babylon's an ascending world power. As Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, leads his troops down to Egypt to to fight against the Egyptians, he comes upon this faltering kingdom of Judah, and he decides that he's going to just sort of quickly, he's going to defeat them too and bring them under his rule. Now, for us to properly interpret this book of Daniel, we need to understand more about Babylon. Geographically, Babylon is located northeast of Israel, encompassing parts of modern-day Iraq and Syria. But here's what's most important. Symbolically, Babylon signifies something far greater in the Bible. The kingdom of Babylon was this real kingdom that lasted for only 70 years. But in the Bible, it comes to stand for something much more. So when we read about Babylon in the book of Daniel, we're actually supposed to think about an early story in the book of Genesis, the Tower of Babel. Babel And Babylon are the same place geographically, but more than that, they share the same values. So quickly, let me remind you or tell you for the first time, if you're not familiar with the story, what happened. God had given people the command to to fill the earth. And instead of obeying God's command, they said, we don't want to fill the earth. We want to stay together. And in this place called Babel, they built this city and they built this tower. And they said, this tower is going to reach to the heavens. And here's the point of Babel. They were saying, we don't want to listen to God, we want to be God. 
well, we're going to find in the book of Daniel that the king of Babylon wants to be worshipped as God. Babel and Babylon, real place, real events in a real place, they, they become symbolic in Scripture, representing any organized, systematic replacement for God. If you keep, keep flipping your Bibles, you'll eventually run into Revelation. And there in Revelation, Babylon comes up again. And the point is not so that you pull out your map or even, I guess, keep flipping in your Bible maybe to the maps and say, okay, where is that future Babylon? That's not the point at all. It's a name that stands for any nation or system that attempts to replace God. So Babylon, the real place, becomes shorthand for human rebellion, for human Idolatry for any and all opposition to God's reign. Last week was the 21st anniversary of September 11th. I remember that day vividly. If you were alive then, I'm sure you remember where you were, what was happening, but also the emotions of that day, right? It was a day of terror. It was fear, anxiety, uncertainty, anger, all of these things, sort of pain, And since that time, you've probably heard someone say this, I know I have, say something like, we don't want another 9-11. Have you heard something like that? Maybe a politician, newscaster. We don't want another 9-11. So what they mean, right, is that we all need to pull out our calendars, take out a black marker, and just scribble out September 11th on our calendar, and we're just going to skip from the 10th to the 12th, right? No, of course not. They, They don't mean that they don't want the date. What they mean is they don't want what that date symbolizes, right? That date now, 9-11, it was a real event. We remember it. But more than that, now it's symbolic for all acts of terror. Well, this is how the Scripture wants us to interpret much of the book of Daniel. These are real events. These are real nations. They are real people but they are also symbolic of much larger themes. So here, when I say Babylon wins battles, I'm not really referring to the one battle it won in 605 B.C., but that throughout human history, Babylon keeps winning battles. The organized, systematic replacements for God are constantly surrounding us and often winning. Now, usually Babylon takes the form of nations, where rulers subvert the, that use their power to subvert what is right. In fact, in one sense, we could say every nation eventually is Babylon. Even Israel itself becomes Babylon. But it can also take the form of ideas. For instance, when you hear maybe the phrase, well, science, you know, has told us this, and it's something contrary to what God says. And usually it means someone's theory of science. But science is on this, in that sense, that's Babylon. Christians, when they saw the rise of communism, said, oh, That's Babylon. Unrestrained capitalism where greed and consumption sort of rule the day. That's Babylon. Babylon is any assault on the values and kingdom of God. Look at verse 2. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him. Along with some of the vessels from the house of God, Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. And so so this verse right here is helping us see what's really going on, that the the clash between Babylon and Judah is a clash of kingdoms, but it's more than that. It's a clash of 
values. It's a clash of worldviews. It's a clash of, it's a religious clash. Nebuchadnezzar takes these captured religious objects, these ones that were made by God's instructions and made for the worship of the true God, and he comes and he puts them in the temple of his false gods so that everyone will know that his gods are more powerful than the God of Israel. And so this military battle is actually a spiritual war. And so here's what the book of Daniel is doing. We're going to see this throughout. It's trying to open our eyes, to peel away sort of the film and the haze in front of us and show us that, hey, guess what? You're, you're, you're in the battle right now. You're standing right here. This is a battleground. You go home, that's a battleground. You go to your work, your job on Monday, it's a battleground where the forces of evil, the kingdom of Babylon is fighting the kingdom of God for your allegiance, even if you don't see it. Now think about those who observe this battle. Like it appears to them Babylon has triumphed. But we're, we're allowed to see exactly what has happened what they couldn't see, that it was God who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to win. In fact, what happens is exactly what God said would happen. So earlier, God had told the prophet Isaiah to stand before King Hezekiah of Judah and tell him because of their rebellion, this is what would take place. Isaiah 39, verse 6. Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all your predecessors have stored up until today will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So Babylon may have won the battle, but only because God had a purpose for their victory. God was using their victory to punish his people for their sin and, listen, to spread the truth of salvation to the nations. See, this is what we see that they can't see. When they captured these men, these young men, they brought them here, they thought they were bringing hostages. They had a purpose. We'll look at that in a minute. And what we see is that God was sending a small invading army into the very heart of Babylon for his purposes. Now, we know that God has often used suffering to move people around the globe for gospel purposes. And since we understand that our suffering is nothing compared to the glory of knowing and being with Christ forever, then we rejoice even in suffering when we see that it opens up the doors for the gospel to move forward. Now, this is not the first time that sacred objects from Israel have been placed in the temple of a false pagan god. Earlier in Israel's history, the leaders of Israel that were wicked, just like, just like the king, king Jehoiakim, they, they, they came up with what they thought was a great idea. They said, we're going to go fight the Philistines. This is another warring nation. And we're going to take the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a symbol of God's presence among his people. It was at the very heart of the temple and tabernacle. We're going to take it before us because basically we think it will bring us good luck. So they take it into battle. It's not how it works. They're defeated. The Ark of the Covenant, this, this sacred religious object that like, signifies God's presence, hauled off to the Philistines. And so they do exactly what Nebuchadnezzar does. They say, let's take it into the temple and let's set it right before the altar of our God, right before his statue, so that everyone will know the God of Israel bows to Dagon, our God. So that's what they do. They place their covenant right in front of the statue of Dagon, their false God. They leave for the night. 
They go over the next morning, maybe a janitor in the middle of the night, I'm not quite sure, and he goes in and guess what? The statue of Dagon is tipped over and it's face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sure they came up with some reason why this happened. Did you feel those tremors last night? Maybe it was a little, you know, we put it in a bad spot. We're going to move it a little bit. They shuffled up. They put it again in front of now the statue of Dagon standing there again. Go home. They come in the next day. It's not only laying in front of the Ark of the Covenant, but its head and its hands are both broken off. What's the point? God doesn't lose battles. But he does sometimes give victory to Babylon. Now, I want you to see in this the grace of God. God, to whom all honor and glory rightfully belong, he willingly chooses to humble himself because of his people's sin. So, so when, when they marched into, the Babylonian soldiers would have marched into Jerusalem and taken these, these objects from the temple... And they would have packed them up and they would have hauled them out of Jerusalem in a caravan heading for Babylon. It would have been with much laughter. <laughs> like, look at the God of Israel. Like, we're ransacking his temple. Mockery, derision, all of this. Why? Why does God allow this? Why would he allow his name to be disgraced? Why would he allow people to laugh at him? Like, God chose to receive dishonor because it was part of his plan to rescue his people from captivity. How deep is the love that chooses to suffer disgrace for the ones he loves? At the heart of the gospel is the humility of Jesus who chooses our shame and our disgrace so that he can free us from our sin. Now what is it that Babylon wants for God's people? The answer is full assimilation. Full assimilation. Babylon wants our hearts, minds, and bodies. Babylon wants us to eat and drink to its glory, to bear its image, to serve it faithfully. And we see this in the program that's instituted by Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time they were to attend the king. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. So Nebuchadnezzar chooses the best and the brightest, the future leaders of Israel, knowing this, that if they become Babylon, Babylonians, then Israel will be no more. You see, the, the king of Babylon has two weapons in his arsenal. And we see actually in the book of Revelation these same two weapons attributed to Babylon. The first weapon is persecution. This starts with a siege. Threaten, injure, harm, kill. And if you do that, then fear may convince some of God's people to give up their identities and take on new Babylonian ones. His second weapon is seduction. We see this in the way he treats the young men. 
They are brought into the palace and they're given the best food and drink. They are placed in close proximity to power with sort of this implied understanding that some of it can be theirs someday if they'll simply become good little Babylonians. Seduction uses gifts and flattery and ambition to convince God's people that compromise is no big deal. So here we have Daniel and his friends. They're enrolled in Babylon State University where they receive new names. They're old Hebrew names. All of them mentioning God, the true God, are replaced by names that celebrate pagan gods. Will they give in? Will they become good little Babylonians? Will they compromise the truth? Well, that leads to the second major theme of the book of Daniel. Believers don't compromise. Believers don't compromise. Jesus told his disciples that we are to live in the world but not be of the world, to be residents of Babylon but citizens of heaven. That's really hard to do. And so how do we balance these two? Well, let's learn from Daniel and his three friends. How do they balance these two realities that we're in Babylon but we're not supposed to be of Babylon? Notice first what they accept. In verse 4, they accept a pagan education. In fact, in verse 17, they're trained in the literature and philosophy of Babylon. This allowed them to understand what Babylon believed. It's possible, it really is, to be familiar with what someone believes without believing it yourself. In fact, I would say this. Don't be afraid to engage non-Christians in conversation. In fact, do this. Ask them what they believe and then think more deeply about what they believe than they think about. So that when you talk about it again, you can help them see where it inevitably leads. They also accept a political career, verses 19 and 20. That God places them in these positions where they are able to influence those who make decisions. Listen, we need Christian judges and Christian mayors. Fuquay Verena needs Christians on the town council and the zoning boards. Our hope, we better get this from the book of Daniel or... I and the other pastors have failed completely. We better get this. Our hope is not in politics. Yet, where we have opportunity to influence change for the good and flourishing of people, we should do it. We see Daniel do that. They also accept a name change in verses 6 and 7. And maybe they weren't in much of a position to do anything about it, but they still chose to accept it because they understood this, that their name did not define them. I mean, that was the goal, right? Nebuchadnezzar is saying, like, right now your name says you are defined by your relationship to your God. I want you to be defined by your relationship to things in Babylon. And they said, oh, you can change our name, but we're still defining ourselves by our relationship to God. But in verse 8, they draw a line. They will not embrace Babylon completely. They reach a point where they say, one step more is one step too far. Look at verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch, yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for ten days. 
At the end of ten days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Okay, we're not told why they draw the line here. There's plenty of speculation, but they draw this firm line at not eating and drinking from the king's table. I think that lack of explanation is intentional because it prevents us reading it from fixating on a certain issue and saying like, okay, well, there's the issue. Instead, we, we get to see the much larger point, and here is the larger point. Christians are not Babylonians. We are different. We must be different. We are to be holy and distinct. At some point, we must be willing to say, no, I can't do that. I belong to God. We don't say it about everything, but we must say it about certain things. I like how Christopher Wright explains it. He writes, Sometimes Christian convictions or a Christian conscience need such symbolic expression, even if the actual form or the symbol is of no intrinsic importance in itself. Sometimes the mere fact of taking a stand on something, of drawing a line somewhere, can be more important as a witness than the substance of the issue itself. See, Daniel and his friends make a conscious, thoughtful decision, prayerfully considering that there are consequences for taking this bold stand. This is not a rash vow or a moment of emotional weakness. This is a sober-minded evaluation of what it means to be a follower of God in a pagan world. This year in our Reborn Student Ministry, we're teaching through some important questions. Questions like, can Jesus be true for you and not me? Hasn't science disproved the Bible? How can you believe in heaven and hell? How do we know the Bible is true? We're teaching on these questions because we know it takes wisdom to grow up and faithfully live for God in Babylon. And so we, we want our children to, to think clearly, to navigate this world with biblical wisdom and understanding. And brothers and sisters, we need to understand that the culture around us is trying to shape our identity just as Nebuchadnezzar was doing to Daniel. Like, will you compromise? So when the boss makes a lewd comment, will you laugh? Or when he wants a portion of your time that does not belong to him but belongs to other priorities God gives, will you just give in? Do you look at social media and watch TV and just feel discontentment with your life? This powerful pull that I, I need more? Maybe it's a powerful pull that I need, to, I need to look different. I'm not content with who God made me to be. When your friends at school press you to be sexually active, because, I mean, that's just what everyone does. Will you give in? So is your identity shaped by what other people say about you? Or is it shaped by the, the gods of the culture, the things that are most important to those who don't know Jesus? Or is your identity shaped by your relationship with God? Daniel, God is judge. This is my relationship. This is my identity. Daniel and his three friends don't compromise. But notice how they do it. They don't get angry. They, they don't create signs and pick at the palace. They don't, 
sign a petition or boycott the dining room. Verse 10 says they speak to the person in charge. They explain themselves and they ask him to intervene. And when he says no, they go to a different official. Verses 11 through 13. And they offer him a viable option. Well, what about this? Could we do this? They don't yell. They don't get angry. They don't threaten. They don't beat their chest in self-righteousness. Sometimes we confuse kindness with compromise. I think this is very true of Christians in America, that we equate being kind to someone with compromising. Like, like we, we think being kind to those in Babylon, being kind to those with power, is the same as condoning their sinful decisions. And that's why we yell and scream and get angry, call people names. I mean, brothers and sisters, we follow God not simply by the stands we take, but by the manner in which we take those stands. We don't fight power with power. We don't take the ring to destroy Sauron, the weapons of our warfare. Include kindness and compassion. Just this week, I was talking with a Christian who works with high-ranking government officials, and he, he told me about a conversation he had recently with a state representative. It was from another state. He went into her office. She's a Muslim woman, got elected to this position, and he went in there to meet with her, and right off the bat, he, he, he told her that he was thankful for her, that he he knows she was made in the image of God, and that's something to celebrate. And he said, I know we're probably going to disagree even on most things, but I want to I I help you, and I want to serve you, and I want to be a blessing to you. And so he started to ask her questions. And he asked her questions about herself and her background and her family, and ask her all of these questions. And then when they, he finished listening, he said, can I pray for you and your family? And he prayed for her, and he told me that as he left, he saw tears in her eyes. Then he showed me the text that she had sent him, thanking him. Oh, he must have compromised, right? He must have just given up everything he believes in order to... Why why were there tears in her eyes? Because he was kind to her. Because he treated her like a Christian should treat anyone as someone who's made in the image of God. In fact, here's what he said to me. He's like, I told her that every time we see a human being, we should clap and say, there's another one God made. And that's how, he, that's how he saw her. He was kind. We need to be kind, especially to those we disagree with. The story of Daniel has intentional echoes of the story of Joseph. Like Daniel, Joseph was taken from his home. Like Daniel, he rose to a position of great influence without compromising his identity as a follower of God. But think about how Joseph's story ends. It's after Joseph's life, but Joseph's story ends with an exodus. Right? God's people, delivered from slavery, return to this land God has prepared for them. And this is how Daniel's story ends too. And, and what's the point? You have these two men who refuse to compromise because they know that God wins in the end. And that leads to our third theme. We'll look at this one quickly because this is going to appear in every verse and chapter of the book, and it's this God is sovereign. God is sovereign. God is sovereign, and in his grace, he saves his people. Three times in this chapter, we find some version of this phrase God gave. So, verse 2, verse 9, again in verse 17. God orchestrates every detail in these chapters, and he does it for the good of his people. Even 
when God gives his people into Nebuchadnezzar's hands, he's already told them, I'm going to bring you out. I'm giving you there so I can save you. God's grace in Daniel's life is evident throughout the book. But we see it summarized almost at the end of chapter 1. Look at verse 17. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the king eunuch, chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. In every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king insulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Here you have Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. They rise in prominence. They grow in influence in Babylon. And we are to understand this is all because of God's favor. That the God who sets up kings and tears down kingdoms, he uses these four young men to do it. But more than that, he cares for them. Like, like the prodigal like the father of the prodigal son who, who stood there and he, and he watched for his son's return from the far country. We know God is watching. He has his eye on these four teenage boys in this distant land. They matter to him. He loves them. I mean, just think about that for a moment. The, the God who made this world, the God who runs this world, he loves every single person in this room. He has his eye on you. So how are Daniel and his friends supposed to serve God in Babylon? Well, verse 20 shows us they simply serve God by serving the king for the good of the people. I don't know where God has placed you right now. Maybe some of you are struggling with this. Someone spoke to me after the first service and they said, I'm really struggling with my job and I needed to hear this. Daniel 1, God has me there for a reason. God has you in your job, in your family, in your school, in your community. He's got you there for a purpose. He may move you. He has the right to do that. He certainly does from time to time. But while you're there, he has you there for a reason. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. He placed you there so that you could be faithful to him there. I want you to think about this account from a global political perspective. Who became the king's Trusted counselors. Four Hebrew boys. I mean, would anyone have predicted that as they left Jerusalem taken captive? Oh, those four boys, they're trudging behind the mules. They'll someday advise the king over the entire kingdom. So as we pray for our world, which I hope you do, what we should pray for is that God raises up Daniels in China Iran, Russia, Cuba, every other nation around the world. Let's pray for Daniels to be placed in strategic positions in our own national government where they advise and give true wisdom to those who lead for the good and flourishing of people. Now at this moment in history where Daniel opens up, Daniel 1 and Daniel 2, it appears that God's promise to Abraham and his promise to David have failed. And so really the Old Testament is about this promise God makes. He first makes it to Adam and Eve, reiterates it to Abraham, then he makes it to David and Solomon. It's this, I'm going to to make a people for myself. 
And I'm going to place a king over those people who will judge perfectly. He's righteous. He will usher in a, a kingdom that's restored, and it will be forever and ever, and there'll be no end. <laughs> and then Nebuchadnezzar comes, and he takes all the best and brightest. And we go, okay, was this the end of the promise? It certainly would have felt that way if you're in Jerusalem, doesn't it? Has God's promise finally failed? Now, we'll get a fuller answer throughout the book. But we can begin to get this answer in verse 21. This is such a key verse to the book of Daniel. Look at verse 21. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. The reign of King Cyrus, who's also called Darius, lasts 76 years. Sorry, begins 76 years after Daniel is deported to Babylon. And so King Cyrus, he leads the Medo-Persian army and he overthrows Babylon. And that's what this means. Daniel outlasts Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel outlasts Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, a Hebrew boy from the tribe of Judah, leaves his home, does not defile himself, grows in wisdom and favor, and is standing at the end as a faithful and true servant of God when the greatest kingdom on earth has come crashing down. And in Daniel, we get a picture of the true servant who lays down his life for his people and in so doing topples sin and death. And in Cyrus... We see a king who is raised up to defeat wicked Babylon. And then he leads God's people home. He returns them to Jerusalem. So think about this. In the final verse of chapter 1, we're not only assured that God wins, but that he wins through a faithful servant and a triumphant king. And those two pictures converge in Jesus. The Lion of Judah who leaves his home. He enters Babylon. He grows in wisdom. He's exalted as king. He destroys evil Babylon. He leads his people home. Babylon wins battles, but Jesus wins the war. When Nebuchadnezzar brought those two Hebrew boys into his kingdom, he gave them a new name, and he instructed them to do his will. So his kingdom, his name, and his will. You know, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, I want you to pray for this. Pray for God's kingdom to come. Pray for his name to be exalted and pray for his will to be done. And so what we must see right now and in every moment since the tragedy of the Garden of Edom, there have been a clash of two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world are in perpetual conflict, and this kingdom of the world has many variations. We're going to see a number of them in the book of Daniel, but even the way they're presented is like, here's one, here's another, here's another, here's another, and they keep going on and on and on and on and on. And all of them share this in common. They are opposed to God. And listen, those kingdoms are not simply out there, they're in here. The air that you and I breathe is Babylonian air. And so this is what it means that you struggle with this, I struggle with this. I struggle with the desire to build my kingdom. I struggle with the desire for my name to be exalted, for my will to be done. Like every day this is a battle for us. I want my to-do list to get finished. Why? Because it's my will. I want my will to be done. 
And I want people to affirm me and respect me and think good things about me. Why? Because I want my name to be respected and honored. And all this is why? Because I wish I were king. And here, listen, in the clash of kingdoms, one kingdom always reigns supreme. And it is not yours. It is not mine. It is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so, here's where the book of Daniel gets eminently practical. It asks us this question. This week, what king will you serve? You are in Babylon. Is Babylon in you? Listen, God has placed you in this place, at this very moment of history for a purpose. Like we are His exiles. We have been brought as an army into Babylon. And this is not a mistake. We we are to live as His representatives here in this kingdom. And yet we struggle so much. We struggle so much with our own desires to reign. Before Don mentioned a verse, and it follows not long after the Lord's Prayer where he teaches us to pray for God's kingdom and his name and his will, and it's this, seek first the kingdom of God. And then it says all these things, the things you need will be added to you. So let me just encourage you, brothers and sisters, no matter what happens, This week, no matter how hard it seems, no matter how loud Babylon roars, determine that you will not defile yourself with the spoils of Babylon. That you will not take your identity from all of these things around you, but that you will find and hold and determine that your identity is in Christ our King. Will you pray with me? Father, we need your help to apply these things. It's not enough to sit here And to affirm them, we need your help to take them and to make them real in our hearts. So I pray, I pray that this week we will not serve our kingdom. That we will not let the values of Babylon determine our values. But that we will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that all we need you will add to us. As Jesus reminded his disciples when he encouraged them to be generous to the poor, he says, don't you know that your Father owns the kingdom? May our position as your sons, may our confidence in your reign propel us to lives of faithfulness this week, we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.